Welcome to the HR LD podcast, where we explore cutting edge HR trends and best practices with top leaders who are shaping the future of work. Hello, and welcome back to the HR LD podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, and we're specialist HR recruiters. And today, on this show, I'm joined by Sharath Jeevan, who is a world-leading expert on intrinsic leadership and motivation. He's also the founder and executive chairman of Intrinsic Labs, where he supports organizations and leaders all around the globe to solve deep motivational challenges. Now, Sharath has worked with governments, leading universities and high-profile corporations from L'Oreal to the London School of Economics. And he's also the author of the groundbreaking book, intrinsic. Now, he was also an awarded an OBE in the 2022 Queen's New Year's Honours List for founding and leading STIR Education, arguably the world's largest intrinsic motivation initiative. As you probably guessed, the focus of today's show is very much about intrinsic motivation. To tell you a bit about the book, well, we're going to find out more about that, of course, during the course of the episode. But essentially, it takes us on a journey around the world to find practical and inspirational answers to solving our motivational crisis. We know people are quietly quitting at work. And Shirath, with heart, who's going to harness groundbreaking research from psychology and economics to philosophy and behavioral science to help you all find that intrinsic motivation on today's show. So without further ado, Shirath Jeevan, welcome to the HR LD podcast. How are you feeling today? Good, thanks, Nick. What a pleasure. So, so great to, to have this really important conversation. You and me both. And obviously, we've, we've met before, so I'm excited to get started. I'm going to start with my first question that I ask all my guests, which is this. What do the words human resources mean to you? So I think there's something, um, I think the first word, I think it's almost like a little bit of a paradox. I think we've thought about this this area very much with the second word, the resources hat on, right? And I think what I think you and I are, all of us really in this area of uh, thinking about the future of work are doing is thinking about the human part. I think we've dehumanized work so much and everything how we select candidates how we work with them when they're in the workforce how we nurture them and and develop them i think a lot of my work i, I sort of see as putting that putting that human back into the equation nice nice we're all about doing that on today's show so let's start with a, a pertinent question really how do we keep our teams motivated in this new work age and i guess a secondary question to follow up so the uh, the podcast's in here asking two questions in once but why has our motivation gone in the first place? So I think a lot of times we're we're struggling with um, three things. I think really thinking about teams, think overall. Um, one is the sense of, of direction. Often we feel quite rudderless in terms of knowing where we're going. Now that may be for the leader of the team or organization, we might feel quite um, stressed out about it, not able to articulate a very clear direction of where we want to go. If we're an employee in that team where often wanting desperate our leaders to sort of, for leaders to tell us where we're going to, and also to shape it with us also. So there's that question around direction, I think often is is quite core nowadays, especially when it's very fuzzy and there's no easy answer in terms of where our organization goes. The second area is around potential. We don't often feel like our full potential at work is being realized. And so there's a real um, desire, I think, to have these environments where all of us can be our full selves and contribute in the fullest way possible. We often don't feel that, so we sort of retreat inwards and put up these barriers, these boundaries up. And that means that we could be creating a kind of vicious cycle there as well with us and our employer. And the third area I think that's coming up a lot in my practical work is around motivation that you alluded to. I think we often don't feel deep connection to the people we're uh, helping and serving in our work. We don't feel we have enough ownership and autonomy. We're not growing the skills we need. 
and as a result, I think we can end up um, feeling like we're, we're kind of going through the motions. And back to your quiet quitting example, that's exactly what we're saying, right? People are staying in, in jobs a bit more now. Obviously, the economy is a little bit more challenging. But are they really throwing everything at their work? Um, yeah, that, that's a real challenge, I think, to think about. Sure. I'm going to um, compartmentalize that response slightly. I want to just focus in on, on two things you mentioned there. One is the ability to feel comfortable to be ourselves at work. And the second of the around purpose. I'm going to pause the purpose bit and revisit that in just a moment. I just want to ask you then, based on the response you've just given, how closely aligned is the, the idea of psychological safety in the work environment linked to the ability for people to be able to bring them best selves to work? Is it, you know, for HR professionals listening to this, how important is that element in order for people to, to find that motivation? Yeah, I think it's a really critical underpinning, um, actually, Nick, as well. And what I think is happening a lot is that we often sort of talk a lot about psychological safety even more and more. And um, some of the work sure. from Harvard Business School and so on has been well, you know, received in the, in the you know, Amy Edmondson and others, et cetera, who I'm a big fan of. It's been um, well received. Is it really happening? That's where the gap is, I think, as well. And I think what happens instead of the psychological safety we have this kind of retreat into what I call a fear and compliance-driven culture. Uh, I'm doing a little bit of work in the financial service industry right now, and what I'm seeing a lot of is, is that um, there's some great talk from leadership often, but actually when it comes down to it, there's very much kind of blame culture coming through. Mm. Um, you could argue politics is in a very similar place, right? So if you have that kind of blame culture, it's very hard to do things um, with genuine intent, intrinsic motivations of doing it because you really believe that area of being your full self because you're always worried about being blamed or being the full girl or guy. And I think we need to sort of couple that idea of safety, which most of us now buy into, into day-to-day -day practice in the workforce. That's, I think, where the gap is right now. Okay. So if we think about the fact that, let's say we are an HR leader who's managed to create what we believe is a, a good psychologically safe space for our employees... The second part of your first response then linked to the idea of purpose. And we hear a lot about the importance of why. And, and we hear a lot about companies creating their mission, their own mission statements, but actually individuals not creating mission statements for themselves. I know that your book talks a lot about purpose, autonomy and mastery. So how can we find our purpose? And once we, we know what our purpose is, how can we use that knowledge, that experience, that understanding to help us find more motivation in not just work, but I guess in all aspects of our lives? Yeah, Nick, I think and since writing the book, I think I've become more aware of these two sub-dimensions of purpose. This, this idea of what I call big P purpose. So where is the organization going overall? It links very closely to the direction we just talked about. But I think the bit that um, is often so missing as well is that small P purpose piece around how does our work help and, uh, help and serve others each day, every day? And those feedback loops are often very hard to see. So you have you know, companies or sorry, corporate executives will say that my job is to meet an earnings per share target or a, uh, a doctor will tell me that, you know, that his job is to meet a waiting list target or a school head teacher who wants to meet the um, uh, an Ofsted inspection rather than actually genuinely help and serve uh, communities and young people they work with. So what's happened, I think, is we've we've almost made it very difficult to connect back to the core purpose, the small P of what we do. Those people were actually helping and serving directly. A lot of the work I do is about reframing organization so that every employee can see that that small p purpose they can see that connection to the customer or beneficiary client community whatever they're doing uh patient um and so that it can all be anchored around that and so if that's the case then i think that if people are really focused on achieving that outcome for the person they're helping and serving 
that's where the psychological safety comes in because things can go wrong, right? You can do that wholeheartedly, genuinely, but it, maybe it was a complex operation or the community, the, the school that has had such challenging children or in financial services, um, there was an issue that, that was very difficult to, to tackle because of a fraud concern. So all of these kinds of ideas, but I think if people can feel that if they are really doing the right thing for the customer, they will be um, protected, kept safe, that idea of safety, they will flourish, they will throw everything at it. It's when they do something and the outcome isn't quite what anyone expected, that blame culture can very, very quickly undermine that sense of, safe, of safety and purpose. And so you you kind of accelerate that fear and compliance-driven um, phenomenon even more. Yeah, I can understand. That makes perfect sense to me. Now, when we're creating a motivational culture, in your book, um, you talk a lot about there being three core principles. I'm going to find, ask what those are in just a moment, but they all start with the word intrinsic. So tell me a little bit about that word in particular. It obviously has huge resonance for you. I, I'm, I'm assuming that means it comes from, from within rather than from external factors. But because all three of your core principles start with, uh, with the idea of being intrinsic, I wonder if you could just bring that, that, that concept to life for, for our audience. Yeah, so the idea of intrinsic really is that yeah, it comes from within, basically. And I think leadership, um, motivation, direction, all these questions, they come, they have to come from within. So what I'm finding is a lot of pressure now because we've almost, if you like, um, productized so much of our thinking around strategy and how organizations work. We're very analytical. We're very sort of hard-nosed about all those things. And we need to be to some extent. But if we do things without really connecting to what drives us, if you're a leader of an organization, you're not really compelled by where it's going this is you know back to that idea of putting human back into the equation and the human resources equation it's going to be futile right we're going to get close to those quite gritting type examples or risks as well so yeah how do we do all the things we need to do as a leader as as, as teams as employees but always harnessing very deeply to that that inner compass that's within all of us fantastic and of course the, the three um uh, concepts that you've got the three core principles of intrinsic motivation obviously something we're talking about a lot today but intrinsic direction and intrinsic potential uh what if you could bring those three to life then for audience how do they differ particularly in the new world of work a hybrid world of work a cross-border world of work now as we go into the, a new new era of globalization as well um and a new era of leadership as well you've mentioned a lot there about uh, blame cultures well you know, a lot of us moving away from old school methods of command and control into coaching cultures and, and, and more empathetic related, uh, related leadership cultures. Um, certainly one of the questions I ask at the end of the show is, you know, what are the, the, the things that people often see in a great leader? And the most common answer I get are empathy and, um, and kindness. So I wonder if you could bring those three core principles to life for us. Yeah, so if you start with the, um, the, the, the motivation piece perhaps first, I'd almost think about Nick as like the second hand. It's the short term, day by day, are we being really alive, engaged, and deeply immersed in our work as well. And I think the kind of work environments we're in require that now, um, because things are moving so quickly. We need to have that sense of flow and that sense of really uh, being with what's going on right now. And I think there, I think it's that, what I find often is a big barrier around um, motivation at the moment is around autonomy. So there's a bit of this kind of vacuum where um, employees in a way sort of assume that employees know how much autonomy they have. Employees don't always, um, often aren't sure. And the two are a bit like ships passing the, the night. They're never clear and never very, um, yeah, there's never really a clear, a clear sort of agreement on what that looks like within a particular context of a team or organization. 
and we have that vacuum of leadership that happens because we everyone says okay it's the boss's role to tell us what to do and the complexity of work um today means that no single boss or boss, set of bosses can do that all of us have got to start to lead and so i think that if you think about the motivation angle it's really this idea that i talked about we talked about purpose already um but on autonomy this idea that really we can take control and we can start to redrive things in a much more powerful way in the short term. So I think tapping into ourselves and our own inner compass, that's probably the, the most powerful way of thinking about the intrinsic motivation piece. Um, on the intrinsic direction piece, the idea that that's kind of almost the opposite extreme of the hour hand, where are we going long-term? Again, if we're an individual employee in a, in a company, let's say, we have a really important role to shape that direction with our leaders. We're not, we're not takers, we also need to be shapers as well. And so how do we try and move our mindset to saying that you know, we're often the closest person to the ground? Let's say you're a salesperson in a, uh, let's say a fast-moving consumer goods company. Sure. And you're getting real-time feedback from customers or clients about your products and services, what's working, not working. It's so important that you feed that back to your, um, to your leaders to really help them together with you shape where the company goes, what it offers, where it's adding value and so on as well. So I think on the direction piece, again, really seeing ourselves as, as really important in that dimension of setting leadership and direction and shaping that with our with our colleagues. And if I go to the minute hand, the, the third part of this, which is more uh, the medium term perspective, I think there it's about working with our employers to create the right conditions for us to flourish at work and being very open up to them about what those um, conditions are, feeling we can be authentic. Um, and understand, helping us understand how they can bring that out of us, helping um, the employer bring out strong connection with us to our work. So that's very, very important. But also almost allowing our, our managers to hold up the bar on excellence. What I've seen after the pandemic has been a little bit of nervousness by leaders to sort of hold high quality standards. Um, they, they're, they're afraid of being too dictatorial, afraid of being too harsh. They should yeah. be dictatorial or harsh, to be clear. But I think it's really important they're honest in their feedback. And we create these, these critical conversations, have a rich feedback culture. Because what that means is that everyone knows where the bar is being set. There's no ambiguity there. And I think people really respect that in their leaders. And they want that. They want to know. They want to do their best work. But um, they want that guidance and support to get there. Yeah, so all, all three of these are really important. They're all sort of different um, hands of a, of a clock or a watch, if you like. And it's about how they all work together that's really important there. Sure. I, I love that visual. That's very clever with the, the short-term, medium-term, long-term on the clock. Like you make that work for me in my mind. It's brilliant. Something that, um, that, that struck me was when we're talking about authenticity or particularly in, in relation to purpose, it can change, which kind of brings into mind the idea of the authenticity paradox, which exists because to be true to ourselves and to be authentic, we also need to be aware of who we are now, but we also need to be open to change and growth in the future as well. And that kind of sometimes highlights the tension we have between staying true to our current values and beliefs, but also being open to new experiences and perspectives that may challenge or change those values and beliefs in the future. So because it, the intrinsic motivation is so closely interlinked and entwined with purpose, how do we manage that change? How do we manage that, 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 that change in beliefs? As, and I'm sure many beliefs have changed post-pandemic in the way that the values we had pre and post you know, how do we manage that that authenticity paradox? Yeah, great point, Nick. So I think like what I'm what I'm learning is that when we talk about screening um, perhaps people to come into our teams or organizations, something you're an expert in, so I'm going to defer to you on 
some of these questions. But I think, you know, what's happened a lot is a lot of screening for values, right? Most organizations do it. That is really important to be clear. But I think what I would spend as much time screening on is around what I call a learning orientation and deep curiosity. I work with some of the biggest employers in the world. I, one of them is Adeco, for example, who you know places millions of people into sure. roles each year. And one of the things that we're learning from all that work is that actually that learning, growth, curiosity mindset is so important. And that allows someone to, to be able to grow and develop and express that development with their employer as well. So is that person able to put them, you know, really uh, be able to explore new avenues, have a broad range of interests, be really curious about what the company or organization is doing, willing to put themselves on the line, to throw themselves at problems, even if there's not a clear answer or if there's a risk of failure uh, in that area, and they don't see themselves as a failure, they realize that something might, might fail. I think the ability to do that kind of motivational screening, as I'd call it, is going to be a really important aspect of how we think about selecting for the right people because we can't the environment is changing so fast what we're doing is almost giving ourselves a good um, sense of being able, to, being able to evolve with that but you're an expert in this so i'd be very curious to on your thoughts on this, this area well i'd say what comes to mind for me is a steve uh, to quote a guy called steve chandler who's a, who's a coach that i respect greatly he often says we we often try and teach the thing we most need to learn and it's all well and good whether Adeco being obviously one of the largest recruitment companies in the world, and we obviously work in recruitment as well. We're, we're absolutely looking for values and the, the specifications we receive. Now, it's I think the idea of there being a culture fit has always existed. Um, I will always try and tell clients you're looking for you know you want to try and people that can involve your culture rather than fit what you've already got, you know, because that's just to say still is to go backwards, and we want to bring, take things forward. But that kind of plays into the question of nurturing, and I think if we often need to teach things we most need to learn. That can be challenging for leaders. It's like me trying to tell my team they need to, you know, finish work on time. And yet I'm, I never finish work on time, right? So there's a great example of me telling they need to do for the wellness, for their work-life balance, for all the things that I believe our company should be is a great place to work, which we're certified to be. And yet I, I never listen to that advice myself. So what can we do then if we are one of those leaders? And I imagine there are HR people listening to this suddenly where the pennies just dropped and gone, oh my God, I, I'm always telling people to do things that I never do myself. I've never really, I've never really considered that before. How can they go about building nurturing practices into the fabric of everything they do within their working organizations to increase this impact that we're talking about, allow them to be powerful role models, be the change they want to see, and yet potentially they're the ones that aren't always living the values that they want to live, but for one reason or another, aren't. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great point, Nick. And I think um, you know, it comes back to this fundamental insight I've learned from my engagement with so many leaders across sectors that people listen or people see so much what we, more what we do rather than listen to what we say. So I think what we do is so much more important than what we say as leaders. And um, what I would say, going back to the idea of intrinsic leadership, let's connect from within. So let's take that example of a leader who is working incredibly hard, but is telling his or her team that they should be you know, reducing their hours and, and thinking about work-life balance. There's a real question about what kind of organization does a leader want, it, want their company to be? If it is one, if it's, if it's in a very fast-paced environment, maybe it's in a, a very entrepreneurial one, um, it does need to go quickly and it does need to adapt. And sometimes it may need you know, checking things at night or whatever needs to be happened. What I found leaders do is they sort of, they become the fall guy and fall girl. And they say, look, let me take all the burden on. Let me work at this crazy pace, but let me try and create this wonderful, tranquil space for my team. 
it doesn't work because they're in a way ignoring the reality of the industry or environment or stage of company they're at. First of all, as you said, there's also this kind of paradox of how they're behaving, how they're acting. It causes more confusion uh, in the team, actually. So I, I'm more in favor of an honest conversation, a bit of a new deal where we have an honest conversation with teams. So look, we're in this environment. It's going really quickly, guys. The next year is make or break for the company. I'm just making this up, right? It's a hypothetical situation. Uh, we need to pull in this together. How can we do it together? So we all want to work by life balance. I'm the leader. Maybe I'm the CEO of the company. I've also got a family or friends and important obligations uh, to, to fill in my life. How can we do this in a way that's fair? So maybe what that means is, you know, okay, we only two of us uh, each night will check email in the evening, for example. And if there is something, they'll quickly call the person involved if they need some escalation, but where possible, they'll solve it. So you could have some kind of rotor system, for example. It could also be that perhaps the CEO is taking on too much themselves and just needs to distribute leadership and decision-making more across the company so her or his shoulders feel a bit lighter. Certainly leaders now have such heavy shoulders, I'm, I'm finding. And what I've seen a lot of um, times happening now is that if the CEO or leader is empathetic, they take on so much of the emotional burden now of their team. You know, people are bringing so much to work that was never talked about before in terms of their personal lives, their relationships. At the same time, many people are also trying to put a boundary up in terms of what they believe work-life balance is. And it's being dumped on, on the leader, right? Often our leaders in, in the organization. And of course, the leaders are the best paid. They've got the, the car parking space, the title. So, you know, I'm not trying to overdo the sympathy, but I do think it's important to make this a fair way of distributing responsibility. Just having honest conversations about the context they're in and why certain things might be needed for the, the very survival and flourishing of the company at hand as well. Yeah, that makes sense, Sasha. I think one thing that resonates with me in that response is that... Um in my own example, where I'm telling everyone to finish on time and I'm working late, it can become a bit of a game for them. They, the employees can wonder, is that, is that what he Nick really wants? Yeah. Because he's working late. So yeah. is it a test? You know, should I be working late as well, even though he said go And that, that that lack of communication, without me even knowing it, I'm trying to do a good thing, can create this anxiety in the mind, can create questions, and suddenly people lose their motivation or or feel challenged when you've never meant to create any challenge whatsoever. But as you say, that honest conversation can can change and mitigate those those the risk of that that miscommunication i guess something yeah. I, I found really interesting in your your book was that you a lot of your research is based on psychology something that i'm really really interested in and it's not just psychology you look at economics philosophy um but like which is something else i'm also interested in and behavioral science and i wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about some of your research uh particularly in relation to your findings uh just because one they're subjects that really interest me and hopefully therefore they'll be of interest to our listeners as well yeah, so, so I, think I, I should say, first of all, I'm not an academic researcher. I teach at Oxford and Cambridge, but really my, my work is really much more grounded in real practice. And I work every year with about 50 or so leaders in pretty much every every sector, usually about across 10, 15 countries, typically. So I try and have a research orientation into my work. I'm kind of a pracademic, as some people might call it in that way. Yeah, um, nice. So I think what, what's what I'm finding um, overall is how common the leadership challenges are across sectors. And probably that's, that's probably the most important finding that whether you're in the NHS right now working for a large corporate or a, uh, you're working in um, I don't know, political life or an NGO, whatever, these things are converging very rapidly. And I think we need to have very honest conversations across, um, across sectors because I think in a single sector or single environment, we can get very office, can get very pressed against the window. We don't see the bigger pattern. So I've started now to connect the leaders I work with together into a learning network where they can 
share ideas and share share practices. I'd say the biggest thing that's coming up right now, the biggest theme though, thematically, is this idea of courage. And I think this idea that leadership is at its core a courageous act. It involves us need to step into the unknown, um, taking a bit of a, a punt, a bet sometimes, because we will never get the right answer, especially in these very volatile, uncertain times. And really leading with that conviction that comes from inside, back that intrinsic leadership idea, you can't have the perfect answer. You know, that those days have gone. So you've just got to um, be willing to put put your neck out, go with it, and but also be open, as you were saying earlier, to reshape your ideas with your team and your learning and inviting your team into that learning journey with you. So I think, you know, this kind of idea of the Churchill sort of example of a, you know, a great prime minister at war and one, uh, maybe not such a good one at peace. I think we've yeah. all done that. We're in kind of this stage where we're both at war and peace all the time. And I think what's more important is we we embrace that uncertainty, still give enough direction. We don't just go out and say, life is tough, guys. I don't know where we're going. We, we still need to go somewhere. But that co-evolution, that co-shaping with the teams and, and people around us, other stakeholders, that feels so important now across uh, everything I see in my practical work. So just take on that premise of co-shaping and collaboration. We've talked about, a lot, about quite a lot already from psychological safety. We've talked about finding purpose. We've talked about um, empathy a little bit and, and, and the, the new world of leadership. For those listening to this show, what would be the, if we could bring all this down into I don't know, five points that can really, the most critical things that leaders need to think about in order to be more um, collaborative and to be uh, able to help find not just their motivation, but the team's motivation. What would be the five central points that you would you'd want to okay. take? I'm going to make it even four. Uh, I think to make it even four, easier. even better. That's really yeah. concise. So, right. so, so I think the first one is like, um, when it comes to direction, don't play safe. So really go for where you believe um, the organization needs to go. Um, to be willing to take risks, willing to also accept that some things you, you're betting on may not turn out to be true, but go with it. But don't become just like everyone else. Try to be authentic, distinctive, and embrace the, the difference, if you like, as well. Embrace how special you are as an organization. Um, so that's probably the first thing on direction. The second, that's the hour hand, going to the minute hand, the, the piece around potential. It's really important to have high flyers, for sure. It's important to have um, diversity and inclusion programs, for sure, as well. But most people fall in the middle of that, right? Most of your employees or your, your team will be unaffected about both those things. They all have unique potential. And if we can really create the conditions where that potential can be nurtured, forward-looking, as you said, every other group, the high flyers, the, those from um, underrepresented backgrounds, they will also flourish as well. So I think that commitment to really make everyone's potential being nurtured, that would be the second sort of um, piece of this as a manifesto, if you like, as well. Yeah, yeah. Third piece of, on the, the second hand would be around creating that day-to-day -day environment where everyone feels deeply connected and motivated. Back to your point on hybrid work, I think productivity has been fine. I think um, collaboration actually in many ways has been fine. It's belonging and connection that have been really hit. So how do we bring that belonging and connection back, both the people we're helping and serving, ultimately the customer, the patient, the child, whatever, but also belonging and connection within others, other employees. So they really feel that sense of a team and that's what makes people stay. They don't, you know, people, uh, you know, there's a mm -hmm. famous phrase, people leave team, um, don't leave organizations, they leave people. So how do we try and build that strongly? So that's the third part. 
just the last part, think of that almost like the the overall dial of the you know, the watch or the clock. How do you get that learning orientation overall? That we go onto these waters, we start, you know, um, start sailing, but the seas are really bumpy and, and, and sort of very unpredictable. How do we keep learning together very closely and have the systems in place where we keep evolving and adapting, doing that not from a position of I've got a, that, that's a failure as a leader, but actually that's a success. We're doing that openly, honestly, and we're, we're sort of steering the ship together. Um, yeah, no. So those are the four things I'd say are really, really important today. Absolutely fantastic. It was a really good response. I'm glad I asked the question and there are four, four pertinent points there. Now, I don't want to, to leave the show without talking a little bit about your book. I mean, it's um, it's been covered by The Telegraph, Financial Times and Psychologies. It's received endorsements from leading authors, including former prime ministers, I should add. So for those interested in finding out more about the book, there will be a link in the show notes. It's called Intrinsic. Um, I wonder if you could tell us something about what the book might provide the reader that perhaps we haven't covered in today's show. What, what else? What else? What other part of the journey will it take you on in the world of intrinsic motivation? Yeah, thanks. So obviously, we focus a lot on work and careers and leadership today because that's the, the kind of context we're talking about. Sure. But what the book tries to do is try to link that with our wider lives. So it talks about our, the link with our relationships, our parenting for a parent, our lives as citizens. And so what I what the book tries to argue for is that we need to look at life quite holistically. Um, and that all these things interplay with each other. But what I would say, and I think this is why today's conversation is so important and relevant, is that work is a great place to start. You know, often I think we think nowadays that the more I put into my work, the less time I have for other things. What I find in the research for the book is the opposite, that actually the more we feel invested and fulfilled at work, the more likely we will be a better spouse, a better boyfriend, a girlfriend, a better friend, a better citizen, a better parent. So these things work together that way around. So, um, yeah, I think the book is a is a very broad guide of thinking about all the domains of our lives. But I think work is a is a great place to start. We're going to be working probably about ninety thousand hours over our lifetimes, and only about fifteen percent, one five percent of us, could gallop globally are really are fulfilled and motivated at work. So there's a big prize to to get this right. Yeah, that makes sense. I I love the phrase, and it's not not true for everybody unfortunately and but there are always opportunities for people to pivot and change but um if you do what you love and you'll love what you do and um that kind of brings that that home for me a little bit so t- just talking a little bit about you know a lot of hr professionals here very dedicated to what they do in their, in their work-life balances but actually your book as you mentioned does go beyond the confines of leadership and and work so what would be your your let's call it single maybe there's four again but I'll, I'll start with one what would be your kind of your primary recommendation or piece of advice you would give our listeners to help them live a more fulfilling life that perhaps isn't just constrained to the world of work yeah so i think if, if i'm an hr professional i think what i'd probably say is i think back to that idea that to kind of thread this conversation the idea of putting the human back into the mm. conversation we are full complete humans and we need to bring that back into the HR function, right? I think we have tended to paint by numbers a bit, you know, mechanize many things in HR and people leadership. I think what we want is a much more authentic conversation. And I think this idea of us trying to manage people is out of the window now. I think we need to nurture their potential. We need to trust that they're grown-ups. They're willing to grow and develop and learn with us and be part of the learning we do as a leader and as an organization. So we need to almost like, if you like, bring them into the tent um, and work with them to shape where we go further. That's really the core difference. Whereas so much of the HR, I, don't know, I went to business school, I have an MBA and so on, but so much of the mindset was around, you know, 
a very instrumental approach where these are the carrots, these are the sticks, these are the employee engagement mechanisms. I think we're everyone's too smart for that anymore. We don't want to be mechanized mm. and done that way. We want to be deeply engaged and deeply part of these conversations. And if we can re reposition HR to be the, the conversation setter, that would be a very powerful way, I think. I want to ask a question that's just popped up. And it's something that I, I do have an issue with, so this may not be for everybody, but I think it resonates with what you've just mentioned. And you said putting the human back into the conversation, being authentic, having authentic conversations. So I want to ask, in a world of, uh, well, I guess the first, the first thing that popped into my head was absolutely right. Human resources professionals are humans, they're not robots, right? And while everything else around us has been automated, this is an opportunity for really uh, real life human conversations and human contextualization to take place on real life issues. But what, how do you view new technologies such as ChatGPT then, where suddenly we're having, I would say, um, conversations online, maybe not face to face, that aren't necessarily authentic because they are being created by machines. People are having lots, lots more to say, um, although they're not necessarily the ones saying it. They're feeding an algorithm to get a response. Um, in a world where I would argue trust has never been more important, you know, we feel like we're being um, hoodwinked by political figures and and by the news and by whatever else we see in social media. How does the rise of things like I'm forming this question in my head as I go, the rise of things like chat GPT impact the world, you know, a world that you, where we're trying to create authentic, motivating environments. I just, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on, on how you view these technologies and, and whether they are potentially detrimental to what we're trying to achieve. I think they're hugely liberating like, overall. I think we've always had these periods where technology, there's always been this worry, you know, since the Luddites of technology replacing jobs. And what we've found in general is that um, you know, we've always found a new way to employ people's resources and talents and potential. There is, I think this is a bit of an inflection moment. I think what ChatGPT is doing is another level of that. It's, um, we've got to a new frontier, if you like. So the bar is higher, but the same dynamics, I think, are still at play. And I think that what we need to realize if we're in the HR or people in the function is that it's almost going to force work to be more human, right? Because everything else will be more automated. You know, a doctor in the future may be doing a lot less, a lot fewer in terms of a lot fewer procedures directly, but much more steering and navigating the patient through the journey of healing. So the human element of, of jobs is going to increase a lot. And we haven't, we talked about purpose and autonomy, the two two of the drivers of intrinsic motivation. The third one's around mastery. And what, and I talked about this in the book, that one of the things I think will happen is the, the human element of our mastery mix will uh, will increase significantly. And I define mastery as, um, you know, becoming the best version of ourselves with that on infinite journey. So I think the elements around, you know, communication, influencing, collaboration, uh, trust, all of these things will become so important in jobs today. And these are things we can't, um, we can't manufacture. We don't do these things right now incredibly well in the education system either. So I think a lot of the role of people leaders will be to help nurture these kinds of mastery areas in workforces and, and among employees. Again, you can't teach, quote unquote, teach empathy, or you can't teach kindness, to use no. words, or, but how do you develop the cultures where they can be promoted and learned and grown together? So I think the the, the, the role of an HR leader or people leader is gonna be ever more relevant, um, ever more challenging, I think. Some of these things are not so easy to, to reduce the pain by numbers. So I think, again, if you can read, 
change our mindsets, our mental models, and bring that human back into the HR function, I think it's critical to make that that, that function stay relevant in these times. Yeah, I'm really glad I asked the question. What a, what a fantastic response and a, and a great way probably to, to, to close the questions for today's show, Sharp. I'm going to open the HR L&D vault and I'm really intrigued to see your responses to these three short, sharp questions. Um, if you give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? This is really a really important inflection moment for, for us, for the world, uh, for organisations we operate in, Nick, as well. It needs new mindsets and it requires leading very differently in these new times. So, Let's not just pretend we're in a, another small change. Let's really embrace that, but embrace the opportunities. It creates so many opportunities to live more fulfilling lives and to make work more human and more fulfilling at its core. So let's let's go for it. Super. That's what we all want, right? More fulfilling lives. Yeah. So that, that makes sense to me. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give to a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? I think so. You talked about hybrid, Nick, and it is more challenging. A lot of the things that you know I, I learned out when I was growing up, um, through my work um, journey, we're, we're through osmosis by watching a, a partner at a consulting firm, how he handled meetings, or how a, a manager would, uh, how she would manage the client, for example, those kinds of things. There's a lot, with it because of hybrid, we have a lot less of that work is a bit more, more, more splinted, more fractured. I think what it requires for those of us in the workforce uh, coming up uh, is to be more intentional and to be willing to go with it, put ourselves in the line, be all in, to use a kind of poker phrase there as well. So not hold yeah. ourselves back, not worry too much about the boundary stuff, but also be more intentional and demanding in the right way. So perhaps less about, you know, work life balance, but more about talking to your manager about, look, I'd really like to attend that meeting. I know it's on Zoom. At the end of the meeting, can I spend five minutes with you afterwards to do the debrief? Just so I understand why did you say those things so I can learn myself there. That used to happen in the, in the, the elevator, the lift going downstairs, and that, you know, you'd have the, a chance to talk. Now you've got to ask for it. So don't be afraid yeah. to ask for it. Yeah, I like that for sure. Uh, and I, I gave a little bit away earlier about the most uh, two most common uh, responses I get to this question. And by all means, uh, follow suit if, if that's what you feel. But what is the guiding principle or behavior you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? I think we're at a really, um, I think there's a deep desire to be led by the people they're helping and serving, first of all. So I think they're a leader not because they want to be a leader, but because they feel genuinely um, compelled by the problem they're trying to solve. And it almost leadership is almost thrust upon them rather than them trying to become this great leader. And I think too often we try to become leaders, and that mm. usually isn't that authentic and that sustainable. I think it's when we dissolve or sort of fall into something much bigger than ourselves and realize we've got to you know do something important in the world that's when i think real leadership could happen so authenticity perhaps authenticity but also the willingness to let go and the willingness to, to push ourselves to the edge to put ourselves our own ego behind the door and just focus on what we're trying to achieve and i think by doing that we'll develop so many skills and attributes and character that will take us to an entirely new level but it's that willingness to dissolve into the problem that that's so scary sometimes it can be the barrier sure Sure. Well, Sharath Jeevan, it's been a fantastic conversation today talking about intrinsic motivation, putting the human back into human resources in this modern world of work. Of course, for people interested in finding out more about the book, there will be a link in the show notes to Intrinsic, so you can click straight through and order yourself a copy. As I said, recommended by prime ministers and very uh, a number of other influential leaders. So do take a look at that. If you want to find out more about the work that Sharath's working on, you can go to intrinsic-labs.com. There will be a link to that also in the show notes. And we'll also put a link to Sharath's uh, LinkedIn profile 
profile for those that of you that want to connect and, and, and reach out to Charlotte directly to find out more. Of course, if you're an HR L&D professional leading to the, uh, listening to the show and you need support with an HR-related vacancy, then please do get in touch with myself or any of my wonderful team. You can contact us at jgarecruitment.com. And once more, that link will be in the show notes as well. Just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Charlotte Steven for joining me today on the HR L&D podcast. Charlotte, thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much.